Welcome to EdPod, connecting educational research and classroom teaching with doctors Eric Laraval and Darren Battaglia. Episode 9, Long-Term English Learners, Separating Myth from Reality. Hello, Eric. How are you? Good. How are you, Darren? Doing great. I'm so excited again to talk to you. I know. I mean, it's 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 it has been very productive every time we we record this podcast, and I feel like we learn more from from what we talk about here and gives us a lot of information about how we can improve our practice and literally translating this research that has been published in you know in the past 10 15 years and translate that that into practice in 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 our classroom and tonight we are going to talk about one of the most controversial topics in in, in education, which is the, the English language learners. And for this particular podcast, we're going to specifically talk about what is this long-term English learners? Right. It's the label that you, I mean, you mentioned it's controversial. We don't normally think of English language learners as being something that's controversial. I mean, there's been a lot of case law around it over the years about education, about educating English language learners, of course, but I think what you mean about controversial uh, in terms of what we're reading and discussing tonight is this label of long-term English learner or shortened as LTEL because it's been used now over the past 10 years or so to describe English learners who have been English learners for over five, six years, five, six, 10 years or something like that, depending upon different definitions. Oh, that's based on the California Education Code and New York City Department right. of Education. Right, and I think different states right? and different uh, researchers and educators might have varying definitions. And I think actually the uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, which was, of course, as we mentioned a while ago, replacing No Child Left Behind, also has um, something mm -hmm. in written into, into that, which is uh, extended into policy, which requires states to monitor the rate at which students are redesignated or reclassified and make to make sure that um, mm -hmm. that time period at which they are reclassified doesn't exceed, I think, five years or something like that. So in, in one sense, mm -hmm. there is now a federal policy around uh, long-term English learners. But anyways, a lot of it goes back to this really landmark report that was written in 2010 by Lori uh, Olson. And the name of the report, uh, I'm looking at my notes here, the name of the report was called Reparable Harm. And it was really about the steps that we needed to take in order to ensure that students who had been English learners for a number of years, many of them entering our school system and were still English learners in secondary schools, how we could give them proper instruction so that they would achieve academically as we would expect them. Yeah, so this is the problem when you start using a label because 
you basically essentialize a group of students and 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 putting them all in one group and and it makes it look like they're they're just one single type that that we can address the specific issues and 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 learning needs and then that's it all of a sudden we can we can find some bullet um silver bullets or magic bullets that voila we 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 can address the issue we can we can we can solve the problem but but in reality human behavior is dynamic it and is. complex yeah absolutely i i i you know i i might counter that there is some usefulness sometimes in labels in, in this types it helps us to have a certain basic understanding of a group in order to in order to perhaps set some policy to uh, achieve certain instructional goals, but it does it does tend to gloss over perhaps uh, who a group of students are. Mm-hmm. This report that I was mentioning did state a few things, and it, it was based upon empirical data. You know, it did look at at the time in California, okay. there were about fifty nine percent of all students in secondary schools were labeled as long term English learners, according to this construct. Um, at that time, California mm-hmm. didn't use this designation. It, it now does. One of the reasons it said that this had happened was that students um, often didn't have a consistent instructional program. Uh, students may have been uh, started off at, at a school with a bilingual program, moved to a, a school that had a, some sort of uh, program where they were doing English language development only one period a day, moved to a school where there was essentially no program. And, and so because of the lack of ELD or any type of language development, they weren't really getting sufficient instruction. So there are many reasons behind you know, this lack of achievement. When we talk about LTELs, we're talking about these kids who were born in the United States and, and except that, that, that English is their second language and, and they started, for example, the Latina population. So when they, you know, they're born, they grew up here, but they use Spanish as their home language. Is that is that right? Is that part of the well, for profile many students? They LTL may have been students? born here and they uh, came to the U.S. schools since kindergarten. Uh, for some students, though, they may have begun schools here in third grade, and now they're still in eleventh grade in high school, and they have yet to. Uh, graduate, excuse me, they have yet to uh, been reclassified. Just like last week in episode eight, we spoke about the graduation rate of New York City schools, and it tracked students who were in fifth or sixth grade as English learners. Those students may have entered New York City Mm -hmm. schools as fifth graders as an English learner coming from another country. If they were seniors and still English learners, they would be LTELs according to this definition, even if they came directly. That's right. And what's interesting about the previous article that we talked about is that 60 to 70% of them finished high school. So in spite of the fact that, you know, when we think about the epistemology of LTELs, that that these students didn't have enough um, language development instruction, and yet they were able to finish high school. Well, I think there's two sides of that, though. And and actually, the article... This first article by Monika Brooks, which is called Pushing Past Myths, Designing Instruction mm-hmm. for Long-Term English Learners, which is in the TESOL Quarterly. 
from that just came out 2018. It's available online. She actually specifically mentions that report that we spoke about. And as, as sort of evidence that there are students who graduate high school, but then I would say that's a pretty low number. To me, it shows that, in fact, there's some empirical quantitative evidence that long-term English learners are not performing well. Yes, we can say 55% graduated, but we can also say 45% of our long-term English learners are not graduating high school. That's significant. So to get back a little bit, and I think that these three myths really echo back to to that work that I was just mentioning, to that report from 2010. The first of the three myths is that they have a similar linguistic and literate profile. I think of all of the myths, this is perhaps the one that can be really pernicious. And, and uh, there are other writers who are really critical of this. Many other researchers sort of ascribe similar critiques of students, um, you know, comparing the LTEL category to other others that have been used um, for students like semi-literate or semilingual or students who have no language at all. So the, the, the idea of semilingual has already been debunked. So there is no such concept as semilingual. But going back to that similar linguistic and literate profiles, one of the ideas that Brooks mentioned here is that when we think about long-term English learners, we always think about that, you know, that they all have the uniform social or a language development or abilities, and then their academic language and literacy abilities are characterized as limited to non-existent, right? So that's, that's like how we conceptualize this myth that we're talking about. But in reality, there is a diversity of characteristics of students who are under this LTEL category. And to her, th these students have a wide range of, of abilities. No, of I, academic I absolutely skills. agree. I agree that, that students have a wide range of skills. What I disagree with, and what I think is sort of a necessary setup for this myth is that there is this group of educators, researchers, who have previously stated that long-term English learners uh, have limited to non-existent academic abilities. Yeah, so the, the, the problem is that she did not cite Yeah, that's my problem. Yeah, I think, I think it's just a weakness uh, in her argument. Mm -hmm. So what about the second myth? Well, the second myth is that uh, students who are long-term English learners have a similar academic profile. Again, this is, you know, built around the idea that because they have gaps in their knowledge, they don't, they don't have the required or desired academic skills of literacy on the English proficiency test or on the state test that would be required to be reclassified as English students. Therefore, they must all have those same gaps in their academic background. In fact, though, there's sort of a, a diversity of experiences among them. And she mentioned several studies, um, as well as students who are performing above and below grade level in different, uh, in different areas. Now, she only mentions a few qualitative studies and case studies. Uh, the only, I think, 
quantitative study she mentions is the one which we already mentioned before, which was those graduation rates. And I also think that the assessment component of, of, of this myth is, is problematic. You know, she talks about the normative conception of academic success, which is solely based on, on, on the state assessment or state-sponsored um, testing of English language development like here in California, all students whose first language is not English are automatically classified as English language learner. And so once they, they put that in the system, then the child is identified as ELL. And so he or she will have to take the test. And, and as, as we know, that standardized test is, is not as is, is problematic at sometimes because it's just it only captures that one single moment of students ability to think and express his thoughts and sometimes when you're in that situation there's there's stress involved there's this emotional component that 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 hinders your thinking your processing and and that affects the results of your test yeah and i think well, I mean, the, the whole idea of normative conception of academic success is important because, you know, we're defining who is an English learner and who isn't. And if you fail to meet our standards, then you continue to be in that category of English learner. Well, I guess my point is that uh, I, I wish it, it, that that the state, for example, in California, will have a multiple criteria not just the test but also um, maybe let's look at the let's look at the, the the grades and the child's ability to to um, to communicate in 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 a classroom and and, this and at home do you have alternative forms of reclassification that they do have some freedom in applying so if a student is an English language learner there are they, there are other ways that could be reclassified. I don't know how. It depends on each individual district, how they make those choices. And, and I know it, this is beyond the topic of conversation, but it's still related to to the long-term English learners. Is you know What about the subset right. of students mm -hmm. with disability? And if they continue to be classified as LTEL, they will never get out of that categorization because of their disability. It's not about the language. And that brings us to myth three, which they are still learning English. Okay, so tell me well, about this myth. a lot of students are not necessarily still learning English because of the, own, the, the bureaucratic processes which we've already implemented. You might have a school where we have a process where students have actually reached proficiency, but we have some paperwork that the school or the district needs to process, and it hasn't been done. And, 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 and corollary to that, there are times that there are errors in this bureaucratic process, and that just put these kids into right. a bind. And there's oftentimes, and I think that it might even be mentioned here, where you have a student who perhaps meet reclassi meets reclassification process in grade four, and for whatever reason, you know, and, and we're all teachers and we mean well, but something happens, the person who is in charge of that reclassification process when, when the student is in grade four, 
drops the ball and doesn't get it done. And then in grade five, the student scores um, low again and doesn't meet reclassification process. So these are sort of those bureaucratic barriers that do happen frequently. There's also this idea that she mentioned about the racialized beliefs and perceptions of teachers and administrators that contribute to this myth. So what are the implications of this? What can we do as teacher practitioners now that we know these myths? I mean, so what? She provided a, a really, it's, it's, I feel like it's, it's a very practical framework that she presented on page 229. And these are the four sub-questions, instructional leaders. And by that, she meant teachers and administrators that must ask to develop a multifaceted conceptualization of students who are classified as long-term English learners. And the first question is, what are the racial, linguistic, or other socially significant demographic characteristic of students who are identified as LTELs? The second one is, for what bureaucratic reasons are students remaining in the EL classification? Number three, what are the educational histories of students who are identified as LTEL? And number four, what are the linguistic experiences of students who are identified as LTELs? So these questions are basically reflections of, of those three myths. So that she's just, I think what she's trying to, to, to say here is that let us switch the myth and then let me ask you these questions and let's talk about these questions and by by interrogating the you know the ideas about all these myths then then we can we can um support these students in our classroom let's let's tease out these questions i i know it's it's so limited but i think we can we can infer from from these questions now the second question that she raised is about the bureaucracy of classifying English language learners and 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 it is a it is a problem of practice and and we all already mentioned one of those um, errors is that one of those practices that are inherently bureaucratic is is the process of identifying who is an English language learner and who is not when when this when the child enters a school and I guess this is this question is more addressed to to the, to the school district level because they are the ones who who are the forefront when when students enroll. Well, I in think the that it's not just a school district level. That's also a school question. I've seen in most schools there is a principal and there is a different schools calls it call it different things a a teacher on special assignment or a case manager or something like that but a school has a person a, a teacher who is assigned to handle all of the english learner program at a school and that person at that site is usually um, supposed to ensure that the testing gets done and reclassification forms get filled out so they would have a a very close handle, really a, a much more meaningful way almost than, a, than, a, than at the district level. So for question number three, what are the educational histories of students who are identified as LTEL? 
the last podcast, we mentioned something about the histories of students and being able to understand their histories better. We would be able to address their needs better. This seems to get at those that point as well by mentioning their their histories of students and their linguistic experiences. Somehow we'll be able to be able to we will be able to connect with them and and address their needs and teach them better. It seems like a very similar idea. Yeah, I think the the first question that she posed here about the racial, linguistic, and other socially significant demographic characteristics. I think for teachers, we need to to be aware of our own biases and because of who you are affects the way you make decision in the classroom whether you're you're a member of a of a historically dominant race or a person of color i think it's it's about the awareness of where you come from your cultural background and and the way you value learning and education in general and the last question is, what are the linguistic experiences of students who are identified as ELTO? I think this is an important question for, for teachers because it informs you what, it's, it's almost like a, a, an informal assessment of, of the students' abilities and interests and motivations. It's very hard, I think. It really, that really takes a lot of work to, to understand that and to know it. I think that question is asking not just about a student's background in language, like, you know, where are they from, what languages do they speak, but also the types of ways they've learned a language, the types of ways they interact in a classroom on a on a on a sort of usual basis. This question to me is so pivotal to to the development of students language and at the same time how the succeeding teachers could address the needs of the child through articulation of of students academic experience from one level to another rather than okay i'm done move on to the next level the next teacher or the next school will just have to figure out you know how how they can um support these students and understand the child's linguistic experiences. You know, this is where that deficit thinking model in English language learners comes in. Because when we think about English language learners, we always think about, oh, they don't really know much about English. And so we kind of dumb down their curriculum and, and, and we, you know, our, our expectations are low. But, but the, the argument that Brooks is talking about, I mean, is sharing with us is that, that um, LTELs, it's a population that is so diverse and, and some of these students are, are, are capable of, of participating in an oral interaction just just like what you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and we have to provide those rich opportunities, ensure that you know we're breaking down barriers of all kinds and understanding the students um, as ways of building up their academics. Great. So I'm you know I'm glad that that we talked about this because um, who knows maybe ten years from now the word LTELS is is gone or or has been debunked because because of some other theories. And with that, Dr. Claraval, 
I will see you next time. Sarang hamidabo. Well, English language learners, right? That's Korean. I've learned something again. That means goodbye. Sarang hamida. Take care. You can find out more about the show and us at edpod.tv. There you can send us a message, read show notes, and give us suggestions. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and rate EdPod on iTunes, please. If you don't like what you hear, tell us. We're on Twitter at RealEdPod and join our Zotero group for complete citations of all articles mentioned on the show. Our theme music is Time by Drake Stafford. Here's one production note. This is our last show before summer vacation begins, and during the summer months, we will only produce episodes about once per month before getting back to the regular schedule in the fall. Thanks for listening. Thank you.